and welcome to The Napoleon Assist and a special episode in which I focus on giving you a series of reviews of a number of titles which might be of interest in your Christmas stockings this year. I'm going to focus on three books specifically actually, all relating to Wellington and his army during the Peninsula War. They are Rory Muir's spectacular first volume of his biography of the Duke of Wellington, Wellington Path to Victory, Ward's Wellington's Headquarters, and Ron McGuigan and Bob Burnham's Wellington's Brigade Commanders. Today I want to bring you a review of possibly the best book that I have ever read. Certainly it's a piece of historical scholarship, possibly the best book I've ever read full stop, and it is this. Rory Muir's first volume of a two-part biography of the Duke of Wellington. Now when I say this is the best book that I've ever read, that's not to cast any aspersions on the second one, it's just that uh, I'm going to focus specifically on this first volume today. The Duke of Wellington is alleged to have considered himself much exposed to authors and as the bicentenaries of his victory passed, scholarly interest in the Duke remained so high that that was possibly even more true than ever. This book was the first of Rory's two-part biography of the Duke, which was highly anticipated, and boy, it did not disappoint. It was his first substantial solo monograph, actually, since his highly acclaimed study of the Battle of Salamanca, which was published way back in 2001. Rory suggests that the best work on Wellington rarely comes from biographies. If that's the case, which could perhaps be disputed, then this certainly breaks the mould, no questions about it. It comfortably outclasses any previous work on the Duke's life, not only in terms of depth of detail, of precision, but also in terms of sheer class. It marks the culmination of 14 years of dedicated research, the depth of which frankly is apparent from the very first pages. Throughout Path to Victory, Rory carefully examines every element of the Duke's life, refusing to rely on the established legends that shroud almost every aspect of his existence. As a result, Rory discovers a number of often repeated anecdotes are actually untrue, and in the process makes some interesting new discoveries, not least about the details of Wellington's probable illegitimate son. He also constantly refutes this notion of Wellington's inevitable and meteoric rise to glory, something which is perhaps more common in some other works. Instead, Rory frequently highlights the changes in fortune that impinged upon Wellington's early career, whilst emphasising the importance of his very separate lives, um, both as a, a military commander, but also as a politician, which helped to secure his reputation in Westminster. This, Rory persuasively argues, I have to say, uh, was quite key in terms of ensuring that there were certain ministers who were willing to vouch for Wellington during the potentially ruinous inquiry into the Convention of Sintra following his first uh, foray into the Iberian Peninsula. It's that consideration of Wellington's military exploits within the context of his entire life that enables Rory to make some highly compelling and nuanced assessments of the factors that influence the Duke's career, um, perhaps more so than those who consider Wellington's military career within a, a vacuum. In arguing against that notion of Wellington's inevitable rise, 
Rory's work builds on some uh, wider efforts that were recently championed by Charles Esdell to change this popular perception that the Peninsula War was an endless march to victory. This book will, well, it, in fact, when it came out, it didn't provoke controversy per se, although there is perhaps a discussion to be had about just how far the concept of an intertwined, mutually beneficial political and military career can be taken. Wellington was by no means the only person to do that. And it would be interesting to see others explore whether what worked for Wellington actually worked for others during this period. Now, Rory is one of these people who never overtly engages in historiographical debate. He's not one of these who likes to lay into people. He is the epitome of a kind of scholar slash gentleman. And it's noticeable that said, though, that his analysis does differ from the work of Hugh Davies, who in a study which came out just a short while before this did, entitled Wellington's Wars, The Makings of a Military Genius, that book made some arguably controversial suggestions, not least uh, that Wellington was to a degree reckless, but by contrast, Rory suggests that events such as the assault on the, across the Douro in 1809, which resulted in the capture of Oporto, are not so much indicative of recklessness, but more a suggestion of decisiveness and boldness, where many generals would only have seen setbacks and issues. Now, that is enhanced, that, that is something that he enhances rather than detracts from Wellington's ability. And Rory is also very rigorous with his interrogation of primary evidence. And in the process, his reading contradicts um, the premise of a number of um, the suggestions made by some, including Davies, um, about Wellington's alleged hysteria over the failure of his attack outside Seringapatam during his campaign in India. Muir is also very careful to fully consider the period between Wellington's campaigns in India and the Iberian Peninsula. Now that might seem like something quite logical, but he has to reproach a, a, what is granted a tendency for many historians to skim over that period, partly because people kind of see the conflict bits as the entertainment, you know, the most interesting bits of the action. Now that approach admittedly is vital to Rory's wider thesis of how Wellington's military career was determined as much by merit as by personal connections. But having said all of that, Rory's considerations of Wellington's involvement in the Copenhagen uh, expedition and the resulting confidence expressed by George Murray and Robert Ansruter, the Adjutant General in Ireland, provide an interesting counterpoint to that enduringly popular finger of destiny argument that's advanced by individuals such as Richard Holmes. So in effect, his consideration of that, if you like, interwar period, Okay, Wellington goes out to uh, Copenhagen for that expedition in 1806, but that consideration of the period between India and the peninsula, essentially, is actually really enlightening and it's something that certainly more scholars should be doing. One of the most unique and valuable aspects of Rory's latest work is the downloadable commentary, which expands on one of the most successful features of Salamanca 1812, which was great for looking at issues of source material and, and wider issues connected to the study of the battle. At 700 pages, that document is actually almost as long as the book itself. I mean, the book is 720 odd pages. So it would have merited publication in its own right because it contains a valuable wealth of additional details and digressions, which themselves make for fascinating reading. As a result, the commentary alone ensures 
that this is an essential piece of work for any serious scholar of the peninsula because it contains so much deep and discriminating research into events contemporaneous to Wellington's life. Bizarrely, the size of this book might actually put some people off. You might be looking at it and thinking, well, look, 720 pages. Is this going to be easy reading? Is this going to be something that I want to invest the time in? Actually, you absolutely do. Rory has a knack, a rare knack, it has to be said, for providing very lucid explanations to subtly argued and meticulously researched points. And the prose is honestly an, an effortless read. It's extremely accessible and extremely enjoyable. The layout of the biography might actually draw criticism because this volume stops at 1814, as you may be able to see from the front cover there. Now, some might say, well, that's a cynical publicity ploy because obviously people will want to know about the Waterloo campaign. And people probably do draw comparisons with Elizabeth Longford's two volume biography because she split her study into Wellington, Years of the Sword and Wellington, Pillar of State. Um, to be honest, I don't think it's a cynical publication slash publicity ploy. I don't think it's something that's designed to make you buy the second volume. I think it's quite simply a question of length. Uh, having read volume two as well, I can tell you that there's another 100, 150 pages covering Waterloo and the wider campaign. So to tack that onto a book that's already that thick would probably have just made the whole thing unwieldy. Um, and so as a result, I think it's one of those things that's required for balance. The extensive attention that Roy pays to the Peninsula War might also surprise some people. I mean, it's about two thirds of the book. It's pretty much that if you're watching this on YouTube, it's, it's a large portion of it. Um, to, and this is devoted, devoted to a conflict that lasted, let's bear in mind, six years. So some might say, well, is the, the balance skewed? I think there are a couple of things that are worth bearing in mind there. First, that Rory's assessment of Wellington's career pre-Peninsula War is by no means insubstantial. It's 233 pages. Now, a lot of biographies won't actually run to 233 pages, so it far, out, far exceeds the efforts of other biographers. Equally, considering the importance of the Peninsula War in establishing Wellington's reputation, which then provided the foundation for his later career, I would say that the concentration on that conflict is justifiable. So, Wellington Path to Victory. It's superbly written. It surpasses any previous work on the Duke's life in terms of depth of research and makes, and that in itself makes it a vitally important book for scholars of the period. You can download the commentary for free online, but seriously, invest in this. This is one of the standout studies of this period. The most famous and most enduring work is probably that of Sir Charles Oman. This, Wellington, the part of victory, is on a par with it. Next up, I want to bring you a review on a book that is possibly one of the most important to have been published in 2017 reintroducing an often neglected topic that is vitally important. It is this authoritative and engaging work, George Ward's Wellington's Headquarters. Historians have long since acknowledged that war is rarely, if ever, glorious. The popular perception of conflict 
is of heroic deeds, bold actions and daring strategies. And whilst those can and do have a dynamic role to play in the outcome of a campaign, in truth, it is the more mundane issues of supply and administration that have the biggest impact on an army and its ability to fight effectively on the battlefield. It's for that reason that George Ward's 1957 publication, Wellington Headquarters, is so important. Wellington was a phenomenal administrator. He had a staggeringly complex grasp of the minutiae of military organisation. And that's a fact that's attested to, really, by his voluminous correspondence and general orders. However, it's only on reading Ward's authoritative work that it's possible to comprehend the true extent of not only Wellington's ability as an administrator, but also the wider network of individuals who assisted him in making the British Army such a cohesive force in the Peninsula War. It was also, it was always therefore a huge pity that Ward's work was not more widely known outside of academic circles a fact which was largely attributable to the difficulty in getting a copy because it had been so long since original publication. As a result, Pen and Sword's decision to reprint this crucial work is a welcome one. And this book, as I say, was possibly the most important publication uh, on the British army during the Napoleonic era to come out in that year. Roy Muir has actually been the driving force behind efforts to bring this vital piece of work back into the mainstream. And it's therefore fitting that he is the one who introduces the reprinted version by bringing his own historiographical knowledge to bear in a short foreword. It's also pleasing that Rory has resisted the temptation to edit or annotate the work in light of more recent research, which has deepened our understanding of the topic. Instead, he's chosen to let Ward's work speak for itself, which I think is a wise decision because ultimately the greatest credit for this book must go to the original author. Ward wrote in a generally engaging style that reflects the careful thought of a man who understood how to make a complex topic both interesting and accessible. At times, he shows wit and an eye for the pertinent quotes, which amply demonstrate his points. It has to be acknowledged that at times the information is a little dry. Now that's largely due to the fact that Ward is disseminating a huge amount of information on a very complex topic. Um, and admittedly, the workings of administration are something that might not always appeal to those who are looking for stories of glory. Now that suggestion of dryness is probably most true in the opening chapter um, where Ward's, beyond that, however, when the book progresses, Ward's writing style becomes increasingly evident. Uh, and there are points where he's able to break off from the description to engage in the analysis and historiographical debate, which are intellectually stimulating. Furthermore, even in the driest sections of the work, it's difficult not to be impressed by the depth of Ward's knowledge and the ease with which he communicates this to the reader. It could also be um, argued that Ward takes too favourable a view to members of the Adjutant General and Commissariat Department, seeking to defend the reputations of those who are often considered to have been incompetent in their jobs. However, this is not really the place for historical debate, and I would suggest that it's really for the reader to decide whether or not they are convinced by Ward's arguments. The only other point of criticism that I would raise is the issue of translations. Ward used both French and German comments over the course of his work, 
without providing translations. Now, in doing that, he was very much a product of his time, writing in the 1950s, when it was assumed that academics would be able to translate those phrases at will. In that sense, it might have been useful when taking this to a mass audience, as Pen and Sword have now done, to somehow make little additions of the translations um, in order to make it that little bit more accessible for those who aren't fluent in multiple languages. The one welcome addition that has been made to this book is a series of black and white plates containing images of both individuals and scenes from the Peninsula War. And that helps to set a lot of Ward's comments into context and is a pleasant addition to the original work. The single greatest impression that readers will receive from this book, frankly, is one of a huge amount of knowledge gained. It's a work that needs to be read at a moderate pace in order to fully appreciate and absorb all of the detail that can be taken from it. I was reading this book for, I think, the third time whilst putting together this review, and I found myself picking up fresh pieces of information and things that I'd forgotten, such as the depth and the value of it. On the whole, scholars of the Peninsula War will ignore this publication at their own peril. Roy Muir and Pen and Sword should be congratulated for their efforts to bring an exceptionally important but little-known work back into the mainstream. Ultimately, there can be no greater testament to the value of George Ward's Wellington's headquarters than the fact that 60 years after its first publication, it has returned to the world's bookshelves, reasserting Ward's well-deserved place in the historiography of the Peninsula War. Next up, I'm bringing you a review of a brilliant piece of research by Ron McGuigan and Rob Burnham, Wellington's Brigade Commanders. It was Winston Churchill who said that never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. That was, as many of you will know, a tribute to the fighter pilots of the Royal Air Force following the Battle of Britain, and it's one of history's most famous quotes. His remark is quite clearly a tribute to the bravery of a relatively small group of warriors, and his words make us aware of a simple truth that wars are never won by one person alone. Now that might seem pretty self-evident, but sometimes I think writers and historians are guilty of perhaps failing to recognise that. Detailed biographies of key individuals from military history inundate the world's bookstores, but there is this phenomenon of focusing on the bigger players, what we sometimes call history from above, focusing on those at the very top who are making all of the key decisions which influence wider events. And in the process, I would argue that we do a little bit of a disservice to those lower down who also had a role to play, but are sometimes pushed to the periphery. Now, sadly, that's as true of the Napoleonic era as it is for any conflict. There are many high quality works on Wellington, Napoleon, Blücher and their immediate subordinates in the chain of command, but relatively little is known about men further down those ranks. Ron McGuigan and Bob Burnham's latest work seeks to therefore address that imbalance, and they've created what is a very succinct, yet remarkably detailed anthology on 71 senior officers who commanded large bodies of troops under Wellington, yet have never received the kind of detailed recognition that they deserved. Now, this isn't the first time that Ron and Robert have come together to collaborate and produce a noteworthy work. For well over a decade, these two esteemed researchers have been writing enlightening publications on topics related to the British Army in the Peninsula War, 
many of which are available through Pen and Sword, who also published this title. Each one of those pieces of research has been noteworthy, not only for shedding new light on significant yet little understood topics, but also for their intelligent approach, careful presentation and the clarity of writing. These are scholars who really take the time to make their work the very best that it can be. Wellington's Brigade Commanders is very clearly a continuation of that tradition. It is evident from the briefest glance of this book that this is a product of careful thought and meticulous research. Ron and Bob have essentially produced a series of short biographies examining the military records of those men who commanded brigades for any significant length of time during the Peninsula War or the Waterloo Campaign. The information is highly intelligently presented with each section beginning with a very helpful summary table that highlights the key biographical details and notes key developments in the individual's career. In fact, the entire book is written with the needs of the researcher in mind, with each page being packed with succinct factual commentaries that amply demonstrate the careful and painstaking research that went into this publication. Every page contains a revelation or a little known fact about these men, some of which relate to their personal lives, others their military careers. So numerous and interesting are those revelations that quite frankly I don't think I should start picking out examples for you because instead I think it's for the reader to enjoy picking those picking up those little nuggets of information by having a look at this superbly researched and incredibly well-written publication. Each chapter also ends with thoughtful comments on the legacies of each man and their impact on the conflict. Ron and Bob are very careful about paying attention to the needs of the researcher by providing an appendix that outlines the periods that the men served under Wellington, thereby setting their actions within a wider context. A wide range of pictures of these individuals are also included, and it's a pleasant surprise to see that many of them are very high quality, which should not be kind of dismissed as an easy achievement because it is by no means do uh, no, no means an easy thing to do, given that so little attention has been paid on, the, on uh, many of these men in the past. Once again, Ron and Bob's professionalism has manifested itself here, as it does throughout the book, and they've gone to the time to track down portraits of these individuals and secure the permissions for using them, which is not an easy thing to do. As is the case with any publication, there are perhaps some areas where the book could be improved, all of which actually relate to using this as a starting point for further research. It's not the content that's an issue whatsoever. Footnotes are used rather than endnotes, and I think that's great and very sensible because it makes it much easier to track the relevant references. You're not having to kind of read a, a particular section, then flick to the back of the book to find it and then flick back to wherever you were. Instead, you've just got to glance down to the bottom of the page. So that is a, a good and intelligent thing to do. Um, I should also be clear that there is an extensive bibliography. But for me, I would have liked those footnotes to have just been a bit more detailed. Now, in complete fairness, I don't think that's down to the two authors. I think that's a thing about style guides that are imposed by the publisher. And so if there's one thing that I would perhaps urge Pen and Sword to do, it's, and in fairness, I don't know what Pen and Sword's style guide is, but if it's anything like other individuals who I've worked with and others that I've seen, it's, a, there is a tendency to 
encourage authors to be as succinct with their footnotes as possible. I think actually researchers would get that little bit more from this book if there had been scope to say a little bit more in the footnotes in order to kind of give people pointers on where to take things. I think it would also have been helpful for scholars to have had a clearer indication of which books in the bibliography were drawn upon to assist with the research of specific individuals. It would also have been a nice touch for the authors to include perhaps a brief comment at the end of each chapter on where researchers should start if they're seeking to learn more about these brigade commanders. In a work that's broken new ground, that would then have enabled researchers to be able to build on this publication that bit more rapidly. But I think it's important to acknowledge that these are very small issues. They're quite selfish issues as well, to be honest with you, and perhaps a little self-indulgent because I'm thinking about this as a researcher rather than perhaps a, a more kind of mainstream inverted commas consumer of the book. Um, and they really don't detract from what is a fantastic publication. Um, and given the reputations of Ron and Bob, there can be no doubt that anyone who wanted to know that a little bit more would receive all the information that they needed by contacting the authors directly through appropriate channels. Ultimately, though, reading this book is a strangely moving experience as Ron and Bob have tracked the lives, the triumphs and the tragedies of a whole host of individuals who played a vital role in the Napoleonic Wars. In the process, they've ensured that those people have finally received the place in history they undoubtedly deserved. So please do have a little look at Wellington's Brigade Commanders uh, by Ron McGuigan and Bob Vernon. That's it for this review's episode. A quick disclaimer that goes into every episode. I am not sponsored by the publishing companies of this or any of the other titles that I feature, and I don't receive any money from the publishers or the authors to review the books that feature on this podcast. My opinions are quite simply my own, but I do have a rule that if I can't be positive about a book, I don't go public with my reviews. I'm not in the business of tearing people down. For that reason though, please bear in mind that I don't take requests from authors to review books for this podcast. Thank you to everyone who takes the time to like, share, retweet, and, and keep spreading the word on the Napoleon Assist. Please do leave a review um, and follow by your preferred podcasting platform. And if you're watching on YouTube, please do hit that subscribe button and the notification bell because it all helps to spread the word and leave your comments. I love to know what you guys are thinking about the content and the topics that feature. I also want to take a moment to thank those of you who are showing frankly remarkable generosity by supporting this podcast on Patreon. If you aren't already a patron and think you might be interested, there is a link in the description. And patrons do get some neat little perks like having their names in the credits and being able to influence some of the future content of the podcast. Tears start from £1 a month, which I know is still a, a significant amount to ask, but it all helps to cover the overheads of production and in time should help me to increase the amount of content that I produce. I therefore make no apologies whatsoever for giving a shout out to my patrons who, at the time of recording, were Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graff, Lynn Dawson and Jamie Kingston. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been a review special from The Napoleon Assist. 
Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.